as uh, as we're as we're talking today, I want to uh, we're going to be kind of working through these ideas of um, conforming and self-formation. And so I want to think through just just to humor me a little bit. How many of you, uh, as you go to IKEA, you pick up a desk, you bring it home, and you start to put it together? You you are the type of person who uh, just starts putting it together, realize that you have two pieces that aren't really quite fitting. That at that point, then you open up the instructions and you begin to figure out, oh, this is what I was doing wrong. How many of you? Just show of hands. Okay. I, I think a few of you are lying. I'm not going to lie. Um, how many of you are the type of people who would say, no, I, I uh, pick up the desk and I open up the instruction manual and I read it thoroughly all the way through and I follow step by step by step. Okay, so a few of you are not answering, I see. <laughs> all right, well, what about this? What about uh, if you're crossing the street and you are trying to get to a place that's directly across from you, crosswalks are 500 feet on either side of you. Do you walk down to the crosswalk or do you walk straight across? How many of you would walk just straight across? Okay, there we go. <laughs> All right, how many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you would go to the crosswalk? Anybody? Okay, a few of you, a few of you. Honorable, thank you. Um, now, what about speeding? <laughs> okay, what about speeding? The speed limit is 65. You're used to Utah speed limits at 80. What the heck? Like, what's going on? How many of you would, how many of you speed? Just be honest. I, my hand is up too, so, okay. <laughs> okay, how many of you, no, like the speed limit is the speed limit, I'm gonna follow the speed limit. Let, anybody? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, as we jump in today, uh, we're gonna take a broad sweeping look at history and try to highlight some key events and shifts in thinking and understanding of humanity and sexuality, okay? Um, and so um, that will hopefully help us kind of understand how did we get to where we're at today. Um, and so there's a lot that can be touched on. There's so much that happened in history, and there's a lot that we're not even going to be able to talk about that it factored into where we are, where we are. Um, but I want to try to highlight some kind of broader sweeping movements through history that help us understand modern thought about sex and sexuality. Um, and the reason I want to do this is because there's, there's a couple of important reasons. First of all, it helps us to understand um, the people in our lives and how they're struggling um, with sexuality, identity, and meaning and purpose, okay? So it gives us some context to understand how is it that people are struggling. Secondly, it helps us to see how God's truth has changed lives in the past and how that can actually give us some confidence to speak into people's lives today. Um, around us. And so having said that, I do want to emphasize because I know that there are people possibly even in this room who have struggled with various forms of sexuality and sexual sin. First of all, I want you to know that my heart, Alex's heart, as we are teaching this class is that we love you and uh, we want to love you well through this class. And so I hope that the information that's gained in this class um, will encourage you uh, in, in your own struggle, in your own uh, walk with sin. We all struggle with sin, and we want to be an encouragement and help one another um, in our own individual is issues and struggles there. And so let's, let's pray um, really quickly then um, as we jump in. Father, I want to pray um, today and just thank you for 
um, how you've been at work throughout history. Um, Lord, I thank you that we can look back and see um, the different ways that um, we've, we've uh, struggled and the different ways that we've gotten it wrong. And, and Father, I want to pray that you would help us and give us wisdom and um, seeing um, how we can grow and, and um, loving and, and sharing the truth um, that, you are, uh, that you have for us. And Father, I just want to pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to start by going way back early to what you can effectively label the sexual revolution, the first sexual revolution, okay? Now you might be like, wait a second, <clears throat> I thought the sexual revolution was in the 60s. Well, yes, it is. Uh, but I think that <clears throat> there is actually another revolution that happened much, much, much earlier, and that was a Christian revolution. And so that's, our, that's kind of our first point, is that there's this Christian sexual revolution. And, the, um, and we want to kind of explore what was happening um, in the context there. So the, the context of the early church is set in the, the Greco-Roman world. And during the first three centuries, the church continued to grow under this persecution. It was not very popular to be a Christian at that time. Um, yet more and more people seemed to be coming to the church, especially uh, people like women and children and um, people of lower social standing. <clears throat> and so to better understand the context a little bit, uh, there, philosophically there was this framework for understanding um, how people lived and uh, functioned um, at that time. And in essence, the, the framework is that the world around me is greater than me <clears throat> and I have to conform to the world around me because I don't have any control over the outcome of my life. So um, I have to submit or conform to my fate. And so this was the case for most things, if not everything, okay? So for example, imagine that you are, just to give a kind of a baseline example, if you, imagine that you are a farmer planting seed to grow grain. You till the ground, you uh, plant the seed, and then after that, you weed, you wait, <laughs> and then you hope and that you pray that the sun uh, is not too hot, that the, the, there's rain um, that comes, and that the, the harvest or that the soil is um, rich, and that the harvest will be plentiful. And eventually, the next thing that you do is you harvest, and then you sell or you eat what um, what you harvest. And while you have some control over the outcome of that, right? You have uh, a little bit of control over the how much you till, how much you plant. Um, you don't have control over the sun, the rain, the soil, the germination of the seed, um, and you have to kind of subject yourself to that, right? And so likewise, in a similar way, if you were born into a village that was taken over by the Romans, your parents were killed and you were taken as a slave, then that was your fate. There was very little that you could do to actually change that. Um, and so you submitted to that. Their uh, male slaves were maybe slightly more value, valued at that time, female slaves um, or children, much, much less so. And so these were kind of the bottom of the bottom. If you want to talk about marginalized, if you want to talk about people who were abused or forgotten, then these are the people that you would talk about at that time, right? And so contrasting that, if you are a male born to an upper class Roman citizen, then you had significant standing. Females, not as much, 
but there is still more respect, generally speaking. And so this is certainly oversimplifying it, okay? But we're trying to get like kind of a broad view. But it gives a, a little bit of a picture. Now, what this meant in terms of sexuality is that uh, sex was exploited and abusive in very destructive ways, okay? Females not, um, oh, sorry. There were sex, there were gross acts of sex and rape done to both males and females, and especially to slaves. So um, an article by the Gospel Coalition um, said this. You guys read that pretty well up there. It says, it was understood that while respectable women had to be virgins and married and could have sex with no one but their spouses, husbands and all males were expected to have sex with servants, slaves, prostitutes, poor women, and boys. Men could essentially force themselves on anyone below them in the social order. They could have sex with anyone but the wife of another man of status. This was, for men at least, a permissive sex ethic. And so this outlines a couple of things for us. First of all, it outlines that there's a disparity between men and women, just period, right? That men could do whatever they wanted, women had to be prim and proper. But it also outlines this grotesque understanding of sexuality that was prominent at the time. And looking at this, we actually begin to see what it was that was so impactful about the church and what the church believed, right? So when Paul writes, uh, in Galatians 3, that there's neither Greek nor Jew, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, that you are all one in Christ. Or in Colossians 3, that there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. And you can see how this begins to challenge this, this social order status that is set up at that time, right? And how it can actually be really appealing um, to people who were um, marginalized in that way. And so there's an added weight of understanding that Jesus values everyone and that there's no difference between them and the privileged. There's no difference between the poor and the rich. It didn't matter what family you were born into. And so you can see this narrative that being made in God's image with purpose, design, and intention can actually engage this narrative of social order and manipulation and abuse. In the church though, there were people of varying status and ethnicities and backgrounds. And the gospel actually began to change the way that we relate to one another, right? And so when it came, um, when it came to it, instead of some of the shame, the guilt, the fear that motivated behavior, um, there was actually um, the love of God that was constraining them to love one another, to receive one another amidst the hurts and the wounds and the heartbreak of life, and allow them to encourage one, one another to hope in the gospel, to hope in Christ. Now, taking this into account, you can begin to see how the church who values and honors human beings would actually become very, very, very appealing, right, to those who were being abused and mistreated and how the church could actually threaten a culture simply because it doesn't conform to the way the world is. It seeks to conform to the way that God created the world to be, right? And so the church began to influence culture to the point that when, Roman, uh, when the Roman emperor Constantine became a Christian and legalized Christianity as a whole, um, he put into effect many of the Christian values. 
Um, and so the practices that used to be permissible or expected suddenly became uh, impermissible and uh, banned. And the people who used to be marginalized and ignored were cared for. And so we see this shift in, in history at this point where the gospel actually impacted um, society as a whole. Now I want to point out something here because at this point, thinking about like kind of the context of history, we might be tempted to think that um, this sort of revolution happened through political means. Um, but that, that is actually not the case. And if we think that, then I think that we might have missed the point. Because change didn't happen through the political power. Now, don't get me wrong, that impacted and affected, but that's not what caused the change. The change happened well before that. It happened through the gospel changing lives and addressing the needs of humanity in that time and culture. And it was only because of that when the political scene shifted that everything um, did so in a way that benefited society as a whole. So setting the boundaries around sexuality that still affect us even today. And so um, that, that actually kind of set the scene for the way that we think about sex and sexuality even 1,600 years later, right? So it's, um, it's impacted significantly. But this actually happened by following the example. Uh, the, that change happened by following the example of, uh, of Jesus and loving the world around us um, and loving those who were broken and hurting and honoring the image of God in one another. And so Jesus has the power to heal broken lives. It was true then, and it's true now. And this should actually encourage us. This should actually empower us to begin to think about how do we engage um, with um, the people in our own time, in our own culture. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to actually maybe work through it, understanding how specifically the gospel engages in these conversations um, but today, the goal is that we get to see a, a bit of a snapshot of the, uh, the course of history and, and how we got to where we are. And so um, I hope that this does kind of give us a little bit of a picture of, of this first sexual revolution, uh, where the influence of the gospel was at work through the church, resulting in a major cultural shift um, in our understanding and practice of sexuality. But what has happened since then? Okay. What's happened since then is we've, we've had this shift from external conforming to individual formation. Okay. Um, and so as history unfolded, we've seen a lot of crazy things happen, right? There've been some insane things that have happened through history. Maybe can you guys tell me a little bit about some of the things that have happened in history? Anybody? War, yes. What else? Holocaust. Huh? Holocaust. Holocaust, yeah. Yep, absolutely. What else? Industrial revolution. Industrial revolution, yeah. Yep. Anything else? Humanism. Humanism, yeah. Yep. We <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I wasn't expecting that. That's that's so that's that is so true though. <laughs> yeah. What else? Anything else? Eventually the 
Yeah. I don't know about that. I mean, not between like the time periods that we're talking about, but yes, you're right. <laughs> um, okay. So as history unfolded, there were some kind of there were some crazy things. Like like people mentioned, we had some wars. There was shifts from monarchy to democracy. Um, there was the rise and fall of slavery um, as we know it. Um, there was plagues to the advancement of technology. There was philosophy and philosophy and science. Um, and it was specifically these latter three, this, this advancement of technology, philosophy, and science that um, we actually uh, have seen an impact from, uh, on most of the events throughout history. Many of the advancements were the results of actually Christians seeking to understand God and understand the world that God created and help us to know him better through discovery and science. Many of the movements that we see throughout history, the development of technology, <clears throat> science and philosophy, the pursuit of human rights, the freedom to worship God, the equality of all people, the abolition of slavery, the uh, women's suffrages and the civil rights movement, th these were all either inspired and motivated by Christians or by people who were influenced by Christian principles and who saw suffering and oppression of various groups of people and sought to do something about it. But along with that, there were other thinkers and other influencers, other philosophers and scientists who were not Christian, who sought to understand the world from a non-Christian perspective, specifically and intentionally excluding God from uh, their writing and their teaching and their work. And so particularly through the 18th, 19th, and uh, 20th centuries, people like Descartes, Rousseau, Freud, Darwin, um, saw humanity in a, a little bit more simplistic way uh, without going into detail for time's sake as these men and many many more wrote taught and philosophized <coughs> philosophized uh, a framework of thinking about human development <coughs> it was more individual it was more psychological it was more sexualized and more degrading of the actual value of human life the value of individual feelings started to become more and more prominent. The value of a person shifted from a foundation of honor and finding and conforming to your place in community to uh, forming and determining your own place in life regardless of the community around you. And so these built a foundation on, um, these built on the foundation that Christianity laid, but took it to places that Christianity never intended. They developed on it in ways that focused on the individual, making the individual needs, thoughts, and feelings primary to what it means to uh, be a human. So simultaneously, as we've seen this advancement of technology, um, especially over the last 30 years, where we no longer have to conform to nature in and of itself, um, to rely on the weather to determine if we will eat, uh, we can actually now, at this point, just go to the grocery store, right, and pick up an apple. Great, I got some food. Um, <clears throat> we don't have to worry about picking it off of a tree. I don't have to conform to the natural world around me. <clears throat> and then the next question that was asked is, what else do I not have to conform to? People slowly began, over time, to move from this understanding of the world as something that is bigger than me, in which I find my place and I allow that to shape and mold me into something that there is, uh, that is there for me to shape and mold into who and how I want to be, 
no longer, I no longer conform to the world. Instead, the world is this glob of raw material that I uh, shape and form who I am, and I make something for myself. So the self has become primary. I no longer allow other people, religions, or societies to tell me who I am or where my value and dignity come from. I determine that myself. So you can see this is a pretty significant shift that happens. And it's significant because it adjusts this theoretical framework that um, establishes the foundation of what it means to be human. It changes how a person thinks about their humanness. Instead of finding dignity, value, and meaning in seeing themselves as created in God's image, um, they instead um, find value, dignity, and meaning that's derived from within themselves. And so this is actually a really super important point. That, um, and I want you to hold on to this for the next couple of weeks because we're going to expound on this a little bit uh, more next week and um, the in, the, in the following weeks. I want you to hold on to it because as we talk more about it, there's an implication about this that changes how a person interacts with the community around them. Okay? Because I'm deriving identity for myself and not the community out, uh, and the outside forces around me, then I'm no longer content to step into my role and fulfill my purpose in that community. I have a need to receive validation for, uh, from you for my self-derived state of being. The reason is that while individuals are becoming more expressive in their individualism, they can't get away from the need for social interaction, right? I still have to interact with other people. Otherwise, there would be no way for me to fully express my individuality, right? So an individual needs others around them not just to validate their existence, but to actually validate their self-derived meaning as well, okay? So, were you tracking that logic? <laughs> okay, great. Now, like I said, we'll explore that concept a little bit more in the, in the next couple of weeks, but this, this week, uh, this week, I want us to see how this framework has been slowly developed over the past 300 years to help bridge us between what was in the past and where we are now, okay? But there's still one more piece that we need to highlight um, with this, and that's the sexual revolution of the 60s, because this is also something that has impacted us. So, sexual revolution... <laughs> And the church's response is what we're going we're gonna to talk through, okay? As technology and medicine advance, it gave us control over what we eat and over many other things. And there's another element of control that it gave to women specifically. Any guesses on what that might be? Birth control. That's right. Throughout history, men have been free to act out sexually however they like, whenever they like, without... Uh, in a sense, a natural consequence that women might have, right? Namely, getting pregnant, having children. But with the development of birth control, women developed a freedom, quote-unquote freedom, to do the same as men. That development of birth control allowed women that same level of promiscuity as men, and this, along with many other factors like abortion laws, 
put the last few pavers into place for the sexual revolution. For individuals to feel uh, the freedom to express themselves however they wished, and specifically sexually. But more than this, what happened is an attempt to actually separate God from sex, okay? Where Christianity in the first revolution connected sex to God, now there's an attempt to revert back where we uh, separate um, sex from, from God. What Christianity did then, our modern world was trying to, in a sense, reverse. <clears throat> so, Gospel Coalition had an article that they put out, and it stated it this way. First, it's important to recognize that humanitarian values of our culture, including its affirmation of sex and consent, come with Christianity. The modern emphasis on the goodness of the physical body of, and of sex, as well as consent and mutuality without a double standard for men and women, were Christian gifts to the modern world. So this is something that Christianity gave to the modern world that now the modern world is trying to separate from. But there's a key thing here, and you can see where it talks about how the values of sect of our culture, including affirmation of sex and consent. Consent is actually a really important concept here. Uh, what the sexual revolution was trying to do was revert back to <laughs> this same way of thinking uh, about sex as we saw in the Greco-Roman world. Okay, so it's the same foundation, same uh, uh, um, concepts that depersonalize and objectify, but they were trying to do it while still maintaining a sense of quote-unquote value by saying that it was okay as long as there was consent. Does that make sense? But in so doing, <laughs> Um, they separated sex from God and reattached it to the social order. And it becomes about self-gratification rather than uh, about self-giving. Essentially, this takes shape as a more ethical, quote-unquote ethical way of gratifying our own sexual desires that still results in the same uh, objectification as before. <clears throat> and so it's disguised under the banner of consent. So as long as both adults say it's okay, what's wrong with it? But really what hap happens is instead of the more powerful person being the other, uh, using the other person for their own sexual gratification, there's actually consent between two adults who then treat each other as an object for their own needs. And this happens for as long as those needs are being met. But as soon as that stops, uh, well, that's where the old adage comes in. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> and it actually means something, right? But this is something that is important because we see how this is shaping up in our, in our culture. Men are seen as the ones who need sexual release. <laughs> and it's not just permissive for them to act out sexually, it's almost actually expected. And there's no expect expectation that men could actually practice self-control. And while women have more freedom sexually, this idea of consent, this idea of uh, being able to control their own sexuality doesn't actually pre prevent or protect them from being objectified. And so instead of finding that sexuality is best expressed in this lifelong covenant that protects the, the man and the woman in a sexual relationship, 
there's a pursuit of selfishness that only works to harm those involved. Okay, so that's kind of <laughs> catching us up to speed to where we are almost today, right? Because there's, there's one last piece to this um, that I want uh, to talk about. So with the first sexual revolution, <laughs> we saw Christianity was engaging culture in a very specific way, in a gospel-centric way. But I want to contrast a little bit. I want to compare a little bit. Um, because when we, when we encountered this type of thinking before, the church responded by um, responding to people in their brokenness and loving them as Christ loves them. But how did Christianity respond to this, this second sexual revolution? Well, how many of you, either through living through it, growing up in it, or just uh, through reference, have heard of the purity movement? or purity culture, right? There's a large number of you, right? Um, it didn't happen that long ago. We're kind of post just coming out of it in a, in a sense. Um, but it was a movement that came as a response to the sexual, the sexual revolution where kids, mainly teenagers specifically, would vow to remain pure or chaste until marriage. There were pledges there were rings, there were purity balls, all sorts of things where teens would be encouraged to remain sexually pure until they were married. And they were given some sort of symbol as a reminder um, of that pledge. <clears throat> now, these pledges are not in and of themselves bad things. It's a good thing to seek to be holy as God is holy, to seek to be pure in your life. Alex pointed out last week that the idea of um, sexuality, the, the definition of sexuality is seeking to be faithful in marriage and chaste in your singleness, right? And so that's a part of what we're, we're talking about. And so this is a good thing um, that they were asking for and that they were teaching. But the problem is that in talking about remaining pure before marriage, that doesn't actually engage the issue that they were facing in hand, at hand. Okay? It, it's like... Um, the, the response of Christian, uh, the Christians to the sexual revolution was, um, actually, was to say, don't have sex outside of marriage, okay? You see how that's a little bit different than what it was before? It's like saying uh, to a drug addict, to a drug addict, just stop it. Stop. Don't do it. Or to an ADHD student who, uh, to just, just focus. Don't get so distracted. Come on, just focus, right? It doesn't work. It's missing the actual issue. Um, and it leaves people confused, hurt, and disenfranchised with Christianity. The real issue, and I would argue still, um, the real issue was, and I would argue is still the case, is that people have been torn apart and ravaged by sin and are looking to find some peace or healing in their brokenness. And this is only found through Jesus, our gracious Lord who loves them unconditionally where they are and wants to see them formed and shaped into the image that he created them to be. So the purity movement, in a sense, missed the mark. And as a result, it promised everything that it couldn't fulfill. Um, it promised something that it couldn't fulfill, that, that people would be happy and satisfied sexually in marriage. And while well-intended, it pointed to the ethic of sexuality rather than to the God of sexuality. And in so doing, it created this idol out of sex. 
and it created this idol out of marriage and it, it did not engage those outside of the church in a meaningful way and it left those many of those inside the church um, struggling to understand uh, how they could be forgiven of their own brokenness and so um, that kind of brings us up to where we are today uh, which we'll go, we'll go into more detail about next week. And so next week we're going to talk through um, what are the things that are happening today, what are we seeing today, um, and how can we begin to engage those in a very meaningful um, and significant way. And so um, as we close, though, my hope is that actually that we uh, kind of have two takeaways um, and that we walk away uh, with two specific pieces. That, that First of all, there are people around us who are hurting, struggling, and unsure of the meaning and their purpose in life, and that we can understand how that is, right? And we can empathize and have compassion for them um, with where they're at. But then also that Jesus has always and will always love humanity, and, is the an- and he is the answer for understanding our identity, our sexuality, and our purpose in life. And so we can have confidence in that regardless of this confusion that we see um, surrounding identity and sexuality. So let's pray and then we'll close uh, for today. Father, I thank you for uh, just your love for us. I thank you that, um, that you created us in your image and that there is a lot of purpose and meaning and, um, and that we can have a lot of value and, and understand that. Father, I just want to pray that um, as we think about this as we engage with this um, in our in our culture with our friends with our uh, peers Lord that um, you would just give us comfort um, and compassion for uh, the people who are around us who are hurting and broken uh, Father I want to pray um, and just ask that you give grace for today uh, thank you for um, your love and pray these things in Jesus name Amen <clears throat>